Welcome in Memphis Grizzly fans and NBA fans all around. This is Elijah Campbell and you are listening to the Grizz and Grind podcast on the Hoop Heads Podcast Network. You are listening to the Grizz and Grind podcast here on the Hoop Heads Podcast Network. I am your host, Elijah Campbell, and we have some news to react to, some actual news as Ja Morant has been awarded the 2019-2020 NBA Rookie of the Year. And here to talk to me about that is Joe Mullinax. Joe from SB Nation's Grizzlies, uh, Grizzlies podcast and blog network. Joe, thanks for uh, joining the show, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And, and I'm not, obviously, I'm a guest on your show. I don't want to overstep, but is John Morant being rookie of the year really news? We kind yeah, of expected this, a, right? I guess it's, it's officially official. Yeah, that's at this a fair point way to put it. Yeah. This is, yeah, this was, I think, a, a set in stone thing. I mean, ever since, you know, Zion only playing 19 games, Kendrick Nunn, I guess, not even being really a starter on his team, being the other finalist. I think once we knew the finalist, or even once we got to got to February, I think it was pretty obvious who the rookie of the year was going to be. But I guess tonight is the the crowning moment um, to be able to finally award Ja Morant the uh, get that official title. So I'll just go ahead and ask you. Off the bat, I mean, uh, here at the Grizz and Grind podcast, we had two episodes doing our year in review, uh, parts one and two. And if you're listening right now and you haven't listened to that, go ahead and uh, and hit that up anywhere you find your podcast or at the Hoop Heads podcast Twitter page. But we, one thing that we talked about was our expectation in those episodes um, going into the season, especially considering how young this team was. And so I'll go ahead and ask you right now, Joe. What was your first, I guess, expectation when the Grizzlies drafted Ja Morant? My first expectation was for them to struggle, to be Mm -hmm. honest with you, because Ja Morant, for all his talent, and it was very evident when he was selected, he was a a near unanimous choice for that second overall pick, probably unanimous. Uh, I thought about R.J. Barrett for a little while, and it, it was brief. Uh, I always kind of thought Morant made the most sense, but obviously, if you follow the Memphis Grizzlies for a certain amount of time, you know scoring wings are hard to find for the franchise. So mm-hmm. Barrett was attractive for a moment, but I do think John Morant was near unanimous uh, with that number two selection. But lead point guards, especially as rookies, don't usually play well. Like Think back to Mike Conley, um, mm-hmm. the, the best point guard in Grizzlies history. John Morant will probably pass him here in the next couple of years. Uh, but in terms of body of work, Conley's the best point guard in Grizzlies history, and he was almost traded for Ramon Sessions a, a decade or so ago. So Whew. you're you're looking at a, a a position in the NBA where it's the exception, not the rule, for a point guard to really excel. You know, Derrick Rose obviously comes to mind as somebody who really thrived early in his career. Um, you know, John Morant's of that same ilk. You know, he came in and. And he was talented. He was explosive. He was an excellent passer. He was everything we thought he would be. But then even beyond that, and I wrote about this in our post uh, with the announcement of the uh, of the Rookie of the Year over at GrizzlyBearBlues.com, for me, the most impressive thing that I did not expect was how much of a leader he became in that year plus, obviously, with the weird restart due to the pandemic. The, the fact that he led the team as well as he did he helped his teammates be better than they were before. 
at such a young age, he was a leader of men. In a lot of cases, a leader of men older than him, with more experience in the NBA than him. Um, he wasn't perfect. He, he has his flaws like everybody does. Uh, there's things that he needs to improve in his game. But for a young point guard to be as dominant as he was at times, to be as explosive as he was against top competition at times, for him to really take on moments like the, the play-in game against Portland in a loss even is a great example. I think it was 35 points, 8 assists. Uh, he had a broken thumb or a fractured thumb, and he goes out there and he plays arguably the best game of his of his NBA career to that point against Damian Lillard. So you're you're in a place where you can look at somebody whose mentality matches Memphis, whose skill set is so impressive. You didn't expect, or at least I didn't expect, for all of that to happen so quickly and flow so nicely into Memphis overachieving the way they did. So I think John Morant overachieved what could have been realistically expected from him in that rookie point guard role with the talent that was around him. And because of his overachievement, the team themselves overachieved as well. I like that point. The the leaders of of the leader of men role that John ja Morant has has kind of taken over, and you saw him do that at Murray State. I mean, even as a freshman, he was the leader on that team. And then, of course, he made this incredible jump from his freshman year to his sophomore year and became the, I mean, became a top ten to eventually a top two prospect within the span of what two or three months. Um, his rise has been really really impressive. And of course, like you mentioned, his his overachievement led to the team's overachievement. And he's really just been the perfect microcosm of what I think this Memphis Grizzlies team was this year. I mean, the, the expectation for the team was to struggle, too. I mean, like you said, the expect, your expectation for Jaw was to struggle. The team would have been to pick, what, 13th or 14th, I guess, in the West. Uh, going into the year, I think I had them at 13th. I really didn't think that they would be anywhere near contending for a playoff spot. And the fact that they were in there down to the final, you know, playing game of the season is incredibly impressive. And it only sh- shows, you know, how impressive the, the season Jabba Rant has had. When you watch the season, what, what, what moment, I should say, was the one where you realize that this guy isn't just a damn good ball player right now, but he is the guy for the future and that he is every bit of the truth as you thought he could be um, coming out of Murray State? It's probably a stereotypical response. But I think it's the block of Kyrie Irving. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily because he blocked Kyrie Irving. Uh, it's more, we talked about that mentality, right? The competitive, the competitive spirit that John Morant has. And that comes from being, you know, a kid in a small town in South Carolina, being discovered by Murray State because a coach randomly went in the wrong gym or whatever the story was. And Amazing he, story, yeah. He's that playing is in improbable. some back corner of an AAU tournament. You know, coming up as a mid-major guard like a Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum that we talked about earlier and being in the spot that he is now to go from that stage at Murray State to literally a year later blocking Kyrie Irving, competing against one of the very best point guards in the NBA, uh, the way that he talked to James Harden, you know, tell that mf -er about me. You know, there's so many early moments where you saw that this kid was not going to be treated like a kid. And I do think that that is important to point out. In a world like professional sports, all of those guys and gals in the WNBA, you know, they have a certain mentality that got them to that point. You know, Dylan Brooks is a great example. People like to talk about how much they hate Dylan Brooks at times because he's so confident yeah. in himself. But that's why he is an NBA player, 
Like that's how he he doesn't have any elite athleticism. Dylan Brooks is not really elite at anything except at believing in Dylan Brooks. And I think that that it's not even necessarily meant as a knock. Like that really is impressive to have that level of confidence and will and belief in yourself to work your ass off and get to that point. You know, John Morant has more physical gifts than Dylan Brooks does, but they're cut from the same cloth in terms of that mentality. So whether it's the Kyrie Irving block, the 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 yapping at, at James Harden, you know, the stuff with Andre Iguodala when he didn't want to be a part of the Grizzlies and the way that they kind of reacted to that. All of that kind of stood out to me as, wow, like this is not just a highlight level passer who's going to try to dunk on people. He lives this. And I mm-hmm. think that what makes a good basketball player great is that type of mentality. It doesn't mean you have to be a jerk like Michael Jordan was to his teammates or anything like mm-hmm. that. But I do think when you walk that line of that alpha kind of competitor, you have to have a little bit of that a-hole in you, to so to speak, that you're going to get in people's faces and you're going to talk trash at times. And you're going to have that belief that you're better than everybody on the floor, including a Kyrie Irving, who's one of the top guards in the NBA, including a former MVP in James Harden. Like for a 20-year-old kid at the time, to mm-hmm. say, tell that MFR about me to James Harden, who was playing at Murray State the year before. That's like incredible. That, that takes pretty remarkable stones. And uh, that speaks to the mentality of Morant that he's going to go out and compete and he doesn't care what your name is, what you've done. He's going to be himself and he's going to fight for his team and, and try to get the best result possible for him and his squad. And, and I think that that, to me, those moments really show that more than anything. Yeah, stones, yeah, saying that remarkable stones is the best way to possibly put that. Mostly, and, and I'll, I'll go back to that Nets game and mind everybody that that's the third game of this guy's career. He's playing in the third game of his career, a 20 year old, and is playing, is squaring off against the best ball handler, arguably, in the league, in Kyrie Irving, and with the game on the line, is able to not only D him up, but to block his shot and send the game to overtime takes incredible confidence. And the, the the whole point of having that self-belief is honestly contagious. And that's been my, one of my favorite parts about his game too, is that it, on, it, it shed to everybody else. I feel like when his game was on, everybody else's game was on. Um, it, it, him and Dylan Brooks having that, that same mentality of, no one else is going to believe in me. I need to believe in myself. And it, it spread to the rest of the team because then the team completely overachieves the next couple months. But I like that game for that defensive that defensive stand on Kyrie Irving and the play. I mean, his game-winning assist on the play. It takes a lot right. of poise to handle the ball in that situation and play the uh, what I like to call the Ryan Archidiacono role and uh, and pitch the ball off and do it in perfect rhythm to Jay Crowder, who played the Chris Jenkins role, uh, referencing the Villanova shot in 2015. And for him to hit that, you know, confidently and him to be able to create that shot on the move with that kind of pressure, the game on the line to get them their first one of the year. I mean, a lot of people don't like to take stock in November basketball in the NBA, but I, I'm, I'm with you. I think that game to me was when I was impressed with his confidence more than anything. And then you have some of the plays like him dunking on Aaron Baines, which is still one of the most like you have to watch that replay over and over again to believe it actually happened. Um, and is a perfect ex- uh, display of his athleticism and his fearlessness. And I think that for me 
Because one of the most impressive things about John Morant is his fearlessness. And he really isn't scared of anybody. I mean, I'm 25 years old and I wouldn't be telling James Harden, you know, or look, telling the Rockets bench, you know, tell that MF or to guard me or tell him who I am. You know, like I'm 25 years old. We'll never have that kind of confidence that this, this kid has at the age of 20. So it is pretty remarkable. When we talk about other, uh, I guess, facets of his game, what is the most impressive thing to you? I mean, we coming out of Murray State, we all knew he was an elite level passer. We knew he was a pretty good scorer. But did you think some of those skills, I guess, would translate to the NBA as quickly as they did? Because he's, I mean, averaging seven assists as a rookie is is pretty impressive. And him, him to be able to score as much as he did, I don't think he would have been able to score as easily in the NBA like he did in college. That would have been the one jump for me. Uh, in terms of surpassing certain expectations. I just didn't think he'd score the way he did this year. I think that's fair, and I think that the way that he scored it, you know, uh, he shot better from three-point land than I think people thought he would at 33.3%, I think, which still isn't great. That's an area of improvement, but that's still better than, obviously, a D'Anthony Melton, you know, in terms of Mm -hmm. percentage, obviously not volume. It's in the ballpark of Dylan Brooks. You know, Dylan Brooks is a better shooter because he shoots so much more consistently. Uh, But I do think that, you know, Morant overachieved, in my mind, what I thought he would be from the perimeter. I liked his floater game, to be honest with you. I thought that, you know, you think of John Morant, you think of him blowing by people and getting a layup or a dunk. But he had more tools in his tool belt in terms of finishing around the rim. Than, than I think a lot of people gave him credit for. And C.J. McCollum aside, obviously people have that imagery in their mind of of McCollum cooking Morant there in that play-in game to close it out for Portland. That was just a veteran beating up on a rookie, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Morant was a better defender than people give him credit for. He's not elite in that. Uh, he has room to grow there, too. But when Morant came out of Murray State, a, a major concern was he hasn't ever been asked to guard elite-level scoring guards or dominant NBA, again, you know, Chris Paul, who had his way at times with Morant, De'Aaron Fox, who had his time his way at times with Morant. So we are arguably, in my opinion, the golden age of point guard play in the NBA. Like almost every night you're playing against a guy who – in another era could be one of the top 10 or so point guards in the NBA. And he might be number 20 because there's just so many damn good point guards Mm -hmm. playing right now. Um, But he would take those defensive assignments and some nights he took his licks, but he got better as the year went on. And I think that he wasn't as much of a net negative or a close to neutral defender. He was almost a positive. And when you have the usage that John Morant did, the, reliance of the Grizzlies offense on him to create not just for himself but for others the fact that he was not as much of a liability defensively as was thought could be the case coming out of Murray State to me that's a a benefit as well so that's not to say that he's an elite three-point shooter because he's not that's Mm -hmm. not to say that he's an elite defender because he's not those are the two most glaring weaknesses in his game right now but the fact that he wasn't as poor in those spots as we thought he may be in this rookie campaign, goes back to how uh, a major reason why the Grizzlies overachieved this season because he was better than people thought he would be in the areas that we knew he was weak. 
And the three-point shooting, of course, like in in today's NBA, three-point shooting is currency. And I honestly do believe that if the Grizzlies weren't in the 20s and three-point percentage during the season, I think they're in the playoffs right now. I think that was the biggest thing that they missed and that they needed to close out games against Portland. I mean, that and experience is what helps you close out some of those games, whether it be the first game in the bubble or the play-in game at the very end. But one thing about John Morant's shot that is promising, I don't think there's any flaws in his form. I think fundamentally he's got the shot down. And free throw from the free throw line, he shoots about 77, 78%. And most guys that are at least shooting closer to 80, I mean, that it's a, a reasonable metric to look at and see that they're that I guess progression is inevitable from the three point line or it's, it's very, very possible. If he was shooting in the sixties and from the free throw line, I would be convinced his shots just broken and he might not ever break past 33% three point shooting in his entire career. But to address, I guess, one flaw of his game, the three point shot, I think will come within a year. I mean, it, it can go, go up one or 2% next year. Um, but with the way his free throw looks is a good indicator as to how improvable that part of his game is. And defensively, I think a lot of the flaws he has is still figuring out NBA defenses. I love the OVC. Uh, the Ohio Valley Conference is one of the reasons I subscribe to ESPN Plus and I pay that $5 a month for it uh, for whenever basketball season rolls around. I love watching teams like Belmont, Murray State, Austin P. all those teams play. It's my favorite mid-major conference. But those offenses are nowhere near as tough to guard as the NBA, with all due respect to the OVC. And as much as I love guys like Dylan Windler uh, or Jordan Adams at, at Austin P, they're not anybody that he's going to be playing on a nightly basis in the NBA. So I feel like a lot of his defensive flaws come from him also having a smaller frame. He still isn't isn't like a physical, you know, like force of nature, still has that that small frame and also having to figure out just how these NBA offenses that he's playing against aren't like knowing the scouting report, figuring out a lot of little things. I think instinctively he's really good. I mean, you don't, um, you don't have the impact that you, that he had on the defensive end. Like you said, he's almost a plus um, in that category, which is something that I wouldn't have expected out of him at all, but he's still almost average an entire, uh, an entire steal per game because he still has really good basketball and defensive instincts. But with all that, you know, given the my favorite thing about John Moran, I think I would say is the way he pushes the pace. Um, one, one of my favorite stats from the entire Grizzlies season this year was um, last year in 2018-19, the Memphis Grizzlies were dead last in pace in the NBA, uh, going about 96.6 possessions um, per, uh, per 48 minutes. This year, they were sixth in pace with 102.8 possessions per 48 minutes. And Joe, what do you think that does for not only a young team, but a team with the young talent that Memphis has? And how does that make a team translate a little better to today's NBA if they're playing in a, a conference like the Western Conference where let's face it, athletically and roster-wise, they're going to be outgunned and out-depthed every night. Well, it makes you depend on that ability to push the tempo. And that's something that Taylor Jenkins talked about throughout the restart in the bubble, You know, wanting to play with pace and space. You want to have speed in your game, but you also want to be able to space out the floor. It's one of the reasons that he was so reliant on Jay Crowder while he was in Memphis, even though he only shot 29% from three, 
during his time with the Grizzlies. Obviously, Jay Crowder is doing a great job for the Miami Heat now. Mm -hmm. He was not that player with Memphis. What Jay Crowder was willing to be was a chucker. And you had to respect the fact that Jay Crowder was going to shoot the shot, even if it didn't necessarily go in the basket. Um, Mm. Kyle Anderson, although I believe he's a better basketball player than Jay Crowder in a lot of ways, Kyle was not willing to be that. And that's one of the reasons that Jay played and Kyle didn't. Obviously, Kyle played uh, once Jay Crowder was traded. But Kyle's strength is also not playing with space. So you saw players like Josh Jackson before uh, the season got suspended, having some opportunity. Obviously, Grayson Allen in the bubble itself had some chances. DeAnthony Melton uh, really thrived on the run. And I think that moving forward, you're going to see them, whether it's in this offseason, next offseason, whatever, they're going to continue to try to find ways to maximize and amplify what John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. do best. And I do think when it comes to John in particular, it's that ability to get out and run. Uh, There's very few players in the NBA that have the level of explosiveness, that first step uh, ability to get off the dribble, penetrate and get into the paint and get to the basket uh, that Morant has. And you want to put guys that can obviously take advantage of a collapsing defense and hit open threes. I think that's something that they'll add. But I also think you'll continue to find Memphis looking for wings, especially that are able to get out and run with Jaw when there are those transition opportunities, those easy baskets that make the defense not be able to get into their half-court set. You want to be able to get numbers and, and take advantage of those opportunities. So I think, obviously, the roster is still a work in progress. This was technically, people forget this, this was technically the first year of the rebuild. Um, it was <laughs> successful, uh, obviously, but uh, this team is, still has a roster that's kind of in transition. This is not the way the next great Grizzlies team that competes for a Western Conference Finals will look here in a few years. Uh, John Morant will still be there, and Jaron Jackson Jr. and Brandon Clark. You know, I believe those guys will still be in the mix. But at the same time, you know, there's going to be some overturn, and one of the things they're going to prioritize because John Morant is so elite already at getting out into space and closing that space thanks to his athleticism, you have to have the space first to take advantage of it. And you need as many wings in particular to get out and move with Ja and be able to make a team pay in a variety of ways once their defense is on their heels and not able to react properly in those transition moments. And I like how uh, Taylor Jenkins kind of encouraged them to keep, you know, uh, I guess pushing the pace because he knows that's what Ja Morant does best. I saw a stat uh, from Synergy uh, from Ja Morant's last year at Murray State where Murray State had almost 20% of their points come in transition, and the next highest team in all of college basketball was around 6 or 7%. I mean, that was – and that is all Ja Morant. Ja Morant is already elite at pushing pace and creating buckets in transition, pushing tempo. And in today's NBA where, what, 10, 15 years ago, I mean, having a, a pace of 96 possessions per 48 puts you closer to the top than it would the bottom – it's incredibly important to have point guards who are able to control that tempo and play well in that style. Hoopheads Nation, we appreciate you listening to this episode of Grizz and Grind with Elijah Campbell. Be sure to check out these other basketball pods on the Hoopheads Podcast Network, including Thrive with Trevor Huffman, Beyond the Ball, the CoachMaze.com podcast, Players Court, Bleachers and Boards, and our other two team-focused NBA pods, Cavalier Central and Nuck If You Buck. Oh, and don't forget to check out our flagship, the Hoopheads podcast, hosted by me, Mike Cleansing, 
and my co-host Jason Sunkel, featuring some of the best minds in the game, from grassroots to the NBA. Switching gears, last thing here. You guys at uh, at the SB Nation Grizzlies page, Grizzly Bear Blues, or at SBN Grizzlies, um, got, you guys tweeted about you getting to participate in an NBA Twitter mock draft. And we talked about it before we came on, before we started recording, but there was a lot of chaos that ensued. And I found this really interesting. You want to go ahead and share, I guess, uh, the results of that mock draft? Sure. Um, well, first off, for your listeners that haven't followed me on Twitter or uh, over at GBB, I've been doing this for seven or eight years now, well, which is way too long for a blogger. Uh, I think I'm I'm entering the Undertaker stage, if you're a wrestling fan <laughs> of my blogging career, that I should have retired and I just refuse to. Hey, longevity's a plus, man. Longevity <sighs> in this business is a plus. If it hasn't, if it hasn't, you know, pulled all yeah. your hair out yet, you know. If this was a video zoom, you would see my hairline and see that it is not. It hasn't lasted very long throughout my blogging career. But um, <laughs> uh, it's not all gone. So you're, you're, you're yeah, of- I like to be a bit of a different thinker uh, when it comes to the Grizzlies. My personal story: I moved to Memphis back in 2011 uh, with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and. You know, I I'm not a Memphian in terms of growing up there, living there uh, for a mm-hmm. long time. I lived there for three years and then I moved back. I'm from the Washington, D.C. area. So I'm back in northern Virginia now where I'm from. And I am different in that I look at the Grizzlies through a different uh, lens than a lot of Grizzlies fans do. And, and sometimes people appreciate that because it makes them think of things differently than they would have. And other times people hate my guts or, or dislike my takes vehemently uh, because it isn't always player-centric. It's more about mm-hmm. the organization and, and how you improve it. I, I do think moving forward, before I talk about my blowing up of the Grizzlies that I did in the mock draft, I, I think in the long run, the, the best move for Memphis is to kind of stand pat this offseason. And the reason I say that is because of the trade they made for Justice Winslow, who obviously was injured in the bubble, wasn't able to play the way they wanted him to. And that was a major reason why the Grizzlies fell out of the eight seed was not having Justice Winslow there. Um, but I do think they view him as their major acquisition. And obviously, Gorgie Dang is a part of that, too, uh, given the way that the trades kind of played out. DeAnthony Melton is a major question, and we'll talk about that more more at GBB as the offseason gets going. Do they re-sign him? Do they do a sign-and-trade with him? Does the emergence of Grace and Allen in the bubble make Melton more expendable? Uh, Melton is one of those guys in transition that makes a lot of sense that we were talking about earlier uh, in the show. He's really good at that with Jaw. But at the same time, if somebody offers him, like I believe the, uh, the SB Nation blog for the Hawks, said that a four-year, $50 million contract might make sense for Melton for them because Atlanta has so much cap space. The Grizzlies should not sign DeAnthony Melton to a four-year, $50 million contract. They just shouldn't, um, in my opinion. That's way too much money. You have over $25 million per year tied up in Dylan Brooks and DeAnthony Melton. That's not a winning combination. Um, so anyway, could that be a sign-and-trade option? You know, That's something that we'll talk about over at GBB. But that's the major question. You know, I don't see them blowing things up. I don't see them making any major trades. They maybe will try to acquire a second second round pick because this draft, while it's kind of shallow at the shallow, excuse me, at the top of the draft, I think there's pretty good depth late in the first round, early in the second round. I could see them trying to make some moves to to do uh, or to get an additional later pick in the draft. 
but I don't necessarily see them making any massive scale changes because they want to maintain the flexibility that they've earned in 2021 free agency, the capacity to take on more draft picks like they did in the Andre Godala trade. This Grizzlies franchise has more flexibility, both in terms of draft capital and cap space moving forward, at least until they have to start paying Jaron and Jaw once they come off their rookie deals than they've had since I followed the team going back to 2011. It's really impressive what Zach Kleiman has done in essentially 18 months uh, with this franchise. So in the mock draft, I did the exact opposite of everything I just said, just to, <laughs> just to see what it would be like. Mm-hmm. If they wanted to try to maximize the here and now, because mm-hmm. there's a situation where the Grizzlies could be better next year and still not make the playoffs. No, because the West is stupid loaded. Because yeah. Golden State's returning and because mm-hmm. the New Orleans Pelicans are probably going to be better. And because the Phoenix Suns just went undefeated in the bubble and will probably be better. Like there's a realistic possibility that the Grizzlies could be a better team in 2021 and have a lottery pick. Like that's very realistic. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like if Memphis gets better and they're still not in the playoffs, they're adding more talent to a team that already has John Morant, Jaron Jackson Jr., Brandon Clark, you know, go up and down the list. And again, it's a draft pick of a young player that won't break the bank for the next four seasons. Uh, If they make the playoffs, that's awesome. They got internally better and the team's on an even better uh, path than we thought they were. And and I don't think that they need to rush into – being better to guarantee being the number seven or six seed in the Western Conference. That being said, in the mock draft that you referenced, that's exactly what I did. Uh, I went out and I got Tobias Harris from the Philadelphia 76ers. That's a god-awful contract. It's a four-year max contract. But again, we just talked about the rookie-scale deals of Ja, Jaron, and Brandon. Money is not really that important to Memphis for the next few seasons. That contract isn't as bad for them as it is for Philly, I mm-hmm. traded Gorgie Dang, Kyle Anderson, and Grayson Allen for, for Tobias Harris. Like That's a fleecing, in my opinion. I just got a top oh, yeah. 40 player in the NBA for three end-of-the-bench guys. You know, Kyle Anderson and Gorgie Dang couldn't make the floor in the bubble towards the end, especially Dang. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's your highest really, paid player. Right. So I think that that's a fleecing. And if it's there, you take it. Um, the other major trade I did – was the Wizards and the Pelicans made a trade with Bradley Beal going to uh, New Orleans, which would be terrifying wow. if you're a Grizzlies fan. Well, yeah, that's scary. Um, yeah, but in return for that, J.J. Redick went to Washington. So what I did was I went and I got Troy Brown, I got Thomas Bryant, I got J.J. Redick, a future first and another second in this draft for Jonas Valanciunas and Justice Winslow. Um Troy Brown's a good young prospect. Bryant, in my opinion, would be the best fourth big in the NBA because I believe Tobias Harris is a four. So you'd have Harris and Clark Mm -hmm. at the four. Jaron would move to the five and then Bryant would be his backup. And obviously, J.J., the veteran leadership, the shooting. Um, But the main reason I like doing these kinds of trades and these types of things in these drafts is it's a chance for you to see how other teams and other fan bases view the value of your players. Like, mm-hmm. if I were to go to a Grizzlies fan and I would say, who do you think, and I'll do this with you right now, who do you think the Wizards fan would have valued more in that situation? Justice Winslow or Jonas Valanciunas? Ooh, that, that's tough. Uh, the Wizards are in a little bit of a sticky spot, but if I'm a Wizards fan, I think I'd value Valanciunas a lot because they were one of the worst defensive teams in basketball. And Valanchunas is an anchor, and, and he's a, a reliable rebounder, a reliable screener, roller. Um, I think I would actually – I'd value Valanchunas 
personally. Well, this guy was the opposite of that. He wanted really? Justice Winslow. And I had to tag Justice Winslow because I wanted to trade Valanchunas. Because uh-huh. to me, Tobias Harris is a four, like I said a moment ago. He's not a three. That's one of the reasons Philly hates him. Because mm-hmm. they have, you know, the four guys that they pay the most money to are two power forwards and two centers. That's not good roster construction. And they crowd um, the floor. Yeah, right. Exactly. Tobias Harris is probably the best floor spacer of all four of those guys. But he he can't defend wings. He's mm-hmm. awful at it. He needs to be a four. So it, once I acquired Tobias Harris, I had to move off of Jonas Valanciunas. I thought the Wizards made sense for Valanciunas since they were so weak at center. Mm-hmm. But he wanted Justice Winslow because he was younger. He was doing the rebuild, that sort of thing. So it's an activity and it's yeah. an exercise engaging the value of the players on your team as viewed through the eyes of a fan base or a writer, a blogger, whatever – who doesn't see the Grizzlies the same way you do. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to gauge the worth of those players. Are they contracts? Like Philly viewed Kyle Anderson and especially Gorgie Dang as contracts and nothing more. Um, Maybe they talk themselves into saying, oh, Gorgie Dang could be a good center. And in theory, he could be. But does Philly really need another center? Like we just talked about, not not necessarily. That was more Uh -uh. about getting off of the Harris deal than it was anything. Um, when it comes to the Wizards, they really like Justice Winslow, his ability to defend and facilitate, and that makes sense. But if you had asked a Grizzlies fan, they would have said that Valanchunas would have been the best part of that deal. According to that fan, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So while I personally believe that the Grizzlies will not be that crazy this offseason, and I don't know that I would be either because they worked pretty damn hard to get the flexibility they have, why blow that up for Tobias Harris? I think that's a logical thing <laughs> to say. Um, that's fair. But at, but at the same time, it allows for you to see what would be viewed as realistic through the eyes of other people that follow a team different than yours compared to the value that you believe you have already on the roster. So notice that in any, either of those trades, I didn't give up any of my first round picks. I didn't give up Mm-mm. any of my second round picks in either of those trades. I was getting draft capital in return for what those guys were doing. And I think that that's something that's interesting, too. The, the fact that these players, Jonas Valanciunas, Justice Winslow, Grayson Allen, Gorgie Dang, Kyle Anderson, those five guys got me J.J. Redick, Troy Brown, Thomas Bryant, Tobias Harris, and multiple picks. And that's it all comes down to what you value in terms of this team moving forward and how much you value that cap space that they're going to have in the summer of 2021. Because the Grizzlies aren't a free agent destination. They had to overpay Chandler Parsons for him to be here. Right. I, yeah. I, I find it hard to believe that John Morant is so powerful personality wise and, and playing wise that players are going to choose Memphis over Miami or Los Angeles or Brooklyn or New York. I, I just Still don't have a see way it. to go on that one. I, I, yeah. yeah. So if you want to make an argument that you want to maintain that cap space so you can pull off another Iguadala esque trade and take a first so you pay somebody to go away. I think that makes sense. If you want to try to acquire a Tobias Harris-like player um, via trade, that's how you're going to get a star. That's how you're going to get a top 30 or 40 player in the NBA more than likely at this point, um, especially top 30 or so. You're not going to get that person to come to Memphis more than likely uh, via free agency. It has to be via trade and it has to be through the draft. And the Grizzlies have set themselves up well to take advantage of both of those particular marketplaces. So even though I did the exact opposite in the mock draft, I did it to see what the value of those players would be. 
I think realistically speaking, the biggest move of the 2020 offseason for the Memphis Grizzlies already happened, and it happened back in the winter when they traded Iguodala, Crowder, and Solomon Hill uh, for Dion Waiters, who's no longer with the team, obviously, James Johnson, who turned into Gorgie Dang, and of course, the centerpiece of that trade for the Grizzlies, Justice Winslow. I love the thought exercise, and I, I thought that was really, really neat how it wasn't just like an NBA mock draft, but you threw in those trades too. And Jonas, Valanci- Jonas Valanciunas is an interesting trade piece because, I, I mean, I think it's worth shopping them. I think you could get something in return. I think you are in good hands, you know, with your bigs and you can address something like shooting. Like three-point shooting is something that you could always get better at. But we'll go ahead and uh, I don't want to keep you too long, but in the, in the second round, Grizzlies having the 40th pick. I know you floated around the name Mason Jones from Arkansas, who one, I love. Big Mason Jones guy. That guy made an incredible leap playing under Eric Musselman in what I would consider a more NBA-friendly offense than they played um, the year before. Uh, What was your thought process behind Mason Jones? Is there any other prospects that intrigue you at the 40 spot? I know the second round of the NBA draft isn't the sexiest thing in the world, but it is valuable if you can land it considering what we just saw the Oklahoma City Thunder do, and that is the guy that's undrafted. You pick him up, and he easily could have been a second-round pick, or yeah, second-round pick, but you pick him up, and he almost single-handedly shuts down James Harden for the last two or three games of a series in Lou Dort. So what other prospects um, would also intrigue you in that area? And what do you like about Mason Jones? I love that Mason Jones can score the basketball. And I think that if you watch the Memphis Grizzlies play, you know that they need dudes that can score the basketball, especially on the perimeter. Um, I think that the concerns about Mason Jones' uh, ability to stay healthy, uh, his weight loss, you know, that kind of Jordan Adams crops into your mind depending on how long you followed the Memphis Grizzlies and, yeah. and how Jordan Adams got hurt and had the clause in his contract that was related to weight and you know that makes you a little bit nervous. Um, but the fact that Jason or Mason Jones was the SEC Player of the Year, he was able to score on a variety of different types of athletes on the perimeter. His game was so versatile in terms of how he was able to score, how he was able to create for himself and for others at times. Um, I just love the way that he plays offensive basketball, and I think in Taylor Jenkins' system, it would make a lot of sense, especially at number 40 where there's not as many uh, – you're essentially throwing a dart at a board and hoping it hits when it comes to second-round picks. But Memphis with Dylan Brooks in the last few drafts, you know, they had success there in terms of taking a solid second-rounder. And then obviously last year with John Conchar, who a lot of people like and see as a possible long-term fit in Memphis – that was a guy that was an undrafted free agent uh, out of the draft. So uh, I do believe that there's value in guys like Mason Jones. Other players that I could see at number 40, I could see them taking a big. Uh, somebody like, you know, a Jalen Smith, I believe is his name from Maryland, mm-hmm. falls around number 40. Uh, that would be really interesting because, again, Gorgie Dang is going to be gone at some point, whether it's by trade or by uh, just free agency. You know, you want somebody long term that you can kind of develop there. Xavier Tillman, if he somehow falls to 40 from Michigan State, would make a lot of sense. So a big of that ilk, Paul Reed, I think at DePaul, I think. I don't want to Oh, be, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love Paul Reed. I've been a big Paul Reed guy. For, he's probably uh, somebody that could creep so. up before 40. Uh, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, but at the mm-hmm. same time, if he falls for whatever reason, he'd be a, a home run at 40. Uh, I've seen a lot of mock drafts that have uh, – and again, I, I, I cover the draft. I watch film. Names I struggle with sometimes. Uh, Nico Mannion, I believe, Arizona. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I see drafts where he – I remember him being a, a possible lottery pick going into the season. And mm-hmm. I saw a mock draft I want. Somebody – it was the ringer maybe or somebody like that. 
they had him going in the second round. Like if Mannion is there at number 40 overall, you sprint to the, the podium and you take him. It doesn't matter that John Moran's already on the team. It doesn't matter that Tyus Jones is already on the team. Nico is an elite passer. He fits the offensive scheme. He's somebody that can develop behind Tyus and Jaw. You don't need to throw him out there right away and expect him to be an NBA player. You can put him in the G League with the Memphis Hustle in South Haven, Mississippi, and let him get reps there and dominate as he gets better, like he's capable of, as his talent shows he's capable of. Um, you know, it's, it's a chance for you to develop players, and I think that that would be a home run pick. And we saw in the bubble how important that point guard position is. Once Tyus Jones went out, uh, the Grizzlies really struggled. So I could see them addressing a point guard need in the draft. And then in the draft itself, the mock draft, I had them taking Robert Woodard of uh, Mississippi State. And I love him because he's just a winning basketball player. You know what I mean? Like you watch his film. He's a very good team defender. He, he's a little bit rigid and his shot improves so much from year to year. It makes you a little bit nervous. But at the same time, he just does a lot of things when you watch him play that jump out at you as like winning plays. Because when you're at I, – I made that pick at 28 overall. Again, Woodard realistically could fall to 40. If and if he's there, you know there's there's value in taking that shot at a bigger wing who can shoot the three, who can defend multiple positions, who can rebound. Obviously, rebounding is going to be a big thing for the Grizzlies. Uh, if Jaron Jackson Jr. is going to be a key part of their team moving forward, Jaron's not a strong rebounder right now, so you need to re- replicate what he does as a big in the aggregate with the wings in terms of rebounding. Um, I think that he'd be somebody a wing like that. Uh, could be a, a very intriguing target because of what he's physically capable of doing, both defensively, offensively, and in addition, how he can just do those little winning things. You don't need superstars at that point in the draft. And I, that goes back to our Tobias Harris conversation a moment ago. The Grizzlies already have their stars. I think you can make that argument. They're in the fortunate place. It's like Dak Prescott with the Dallas Cowboys or whenever you hit a home run on a quarterback draft pick, Deshaun Watson, before his extension uh, with the Houston Texans. If you have a superstar rookie that you don't have to pay a ton of money to, that gives you a few years of flexibility to improve your roster and improve your long-term stakes to either be competitive in the here and now like those NFL teams did or in the case of the Grizzlies – you can take swings in a draft and say, oh, that guy, we know he's going to be a good NBA rotation player. You don't need to swing for the 19-year-old that you hope becomes a superstar. You already have your superstars. You're looking for guys that fit alongside the talent you've already acquired, and that's a nice uh, flexibility to have in and of itself as well. It's a nice asset uh, to have that, that, uh, that opportunity to step back and say, we have Ja, we have Jaron, how do we complement them? You can find those types of complementary players, I believe, in this draft from 20 to 40 and everywhere in between, which is where the Grizzlies will likely be picking. And that, that's my favorite thing about this draft. I mean, obviously, it's not like superstar loaded. I mean, LaMelo Ball could be a star. Uh, James Wiseman could be a star. Uh, there's more questions than, I guess, like the last year where the first two picks were almost, you know, bona fide stars, like, you knew Zion Williamson would be good the minute he touched the floor. You knew John Morant might take a bit, but you knew John Morant would be a really, really good basketball player. And like RJ Barrett's still a coin flip to me. But I mean, he's still, like the ceiling on RJ Barrett's obviously really, really high. And you don't have a lot of that in this year's draft, but I think there are a ton of guys, especially older guys 
in this draft that are worth taking chances on in the second round just because I think you can find complimentary players. Like you said, that's the most important thing. And the name that you mentioned that I was going to throw in if you didn't was Xavier Tillman. I love Xavier Tillman at Michigan State. Smart player. He's older. He's a little wiser. A lot of people knock draft age. I I think that's valuable. I think if you're someone like Xavier Tillman who played, um, who was around a little bit, at Michigan State, he was a junior. Uh, he's 21 years old, uh, a little closer to 22. I mean, you know what he is. I mean, a lot of the, the statistics you see right now are going to be what he's going to project for the most part at the next level. He is what he is almost uh, when you're at 21, 22, more so than taking a risk on like an 18 or 19-year-old. But he's a great screener. I mean, he played in a, uh a program at college with a, an elite level college basketball point guard in Cassius Winston. He knows how to run the pick and roll game. He's got a long wingspan. He's 6'9", but it's a 7'1 wingspan and is an elite level offensive rebounder in this draft class. And offensive rebounding to me is one of the, in terms of value of skill is one of the, the highest things that I value in terms of winning games that you're not supposed to win. You steal games by grabbing a lot of offensive rebounds. And Xavier Tillman is one of the tops in this class in terms of grabbing offensive rebounds. And he's also a great defender. He's one of the top or has one of the highest defensive box plus minuses of any big man in this draft. And he's a proven winner. I mean, the guy played a valuable role on really, really good Michigan State teams. I love Xavier Tillman. And if you're able to draft someone like Tillman, maybe you can risk trading away Jonas Valanciunas for eventually you know flipping him for a Tobias Harris or a bad contract that's on another team that someone's trying to give up I think that would be the perfect reason to take Tillman but another one if they're looking for other scoring guards say you do uh do what you what you did in the mock draft that's trade away um you know guys like Grayson Allen Gorgie Jang or even uh, uh even Kyle Anderson you just need some scoring Grant Riller is a name that I've become more interested in in the last couple months, uh, point guard slash shooting guard, kind of a combo guard out of College of Charleston, 6'3", but any, I wouldn't say an elite level score, a little close. I mean, he, he, his scoring numbers last year skyrocketed, um, at College of Charleston. I think averaging about tw- uh, 20 plus points a game. Um, I think a per 36, he was scoring 23 and a half. I uh, just wanted to get that right. But he shoots 82% from the free throw line, which makes his 36% number from three-point uh, range look a little more enticing. I think he can obviously grow a little bit. And on tankathon.com, great draft website, one of my favorites. They have his projected NBA three-point percentage to be 36.4%, whereas his college was 362 So he took a lot of long threes in college too and carried a large scoring load. He can score uh he can score when he needs to. And I think this gives you a good score that at that point in the draft at 40, you might not have a lot of those guys. I mean if Mannion falls to that point, Mannion could be one of those if you develop and develop him in a couple years. But Grant Riller is another one of those guys that I like because he is a little older. He was a senior. Uh guys 23 and a half years old. Um, it looks like he's one of the older players in the draft. So he is what he is right now. And he's an eff- a very efficient uh, shooter with a true shooting percentage of 60.9%, a thir- uh, over 30 PER, which is one of the highest in the classes too. Granted, he did play lesser competition in college, but if there's anything we've learned in the last year, I mean, you can play mid-major basketball and still obviously succeed at the next level. So I think Grant Riller is an interesting name to look at going into this draft for Memphis too, but... Uh, that's about all the time we have right now. Thank you, Joe, for hopping on the show. 
Um, I love the discussion. I love the thought exercise with the with the upcoming draft, the options the Grizzlies have, which they have a ton of them. Like you mentioned the flexibility they have. They have as much as anybody else in the league. So it's fun to go through all that. And it's fun to talk about John Moran a little bit and kind of reflect on the year that was a, a very historical rookie of the year showing for John Morant and the Grizzlies. I appreciate you having me. And, and I think that going into this draft, you saw last year, because it was Zach Kleiman in that front office's first draft, you know, you mentioned the age of Tillman and Riller. Uh, you know, John Moran, obviously younger, but he had that chip on his shoulder, right? That mid-major mm-hmm. mentality. Brandon Clark, the age thing is the reason he fell inexplicably. Obviously, that didn't scare Memphis off. Mm-hmm. I think dumb. those two yeah. names make a lot of sense. Tillman because of his age and Riller because of that mid-major thing. You know, they're looking for guys that have a certain mentality, a certain way of carrying themselves. If you go from College of Charleston or Murray State or a transfer to Gonzaga and you've gotten yourself to the point of being an NBA prospect, you busted your ass to get there. It's not just Mm -hmm. talent. You have a a certain work ethic and mentality. And I think as they build the culture of what it means to be a Memphis Grizzlies basketball player in this decade – those types of players are going to be valued. So I do think that all those names that you just listed off, especially those last two, Tillman and Riller, they're ones to watch. I do believe that those are guys that fit the mold and the the persona that this front office is looking for. So thanks for having me. Uh, I love talking basketball. I love talking Grizzlies basketball in particular, and, and I'd be happy to do it again down the road. That sounds great. Joe Mullinax, everybody, at Joe Mullinax on Twitter. He is also the host of Grizzly Bear Blues Live on SB Nation Podcast Network. Great discussion, Joe. Thank you very much. And you all have been listening to the Grizz and Grind Podcast here on the Hoop Heads Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to the Grizz and Grind Podcast here on the Hoop Heads Podcast Network. This is Elijah Campbell saying so long, and we hope to have you back again soon for more of the best Grizzlies talk east of the Mississippi. We'll see you around.